Well, we're continuing in our series of messages from the Gospel of John. The message became flesh. And I wanted to start out today with a meme because we don't do enough of those in church. You might have seen something like this before on Facebook. What you think you look like versus what you actually look like. I thought that went really well with the past we're looking at today because I find that very often this, the reason we find these memes funny is that we totally know it's true. Uh, we, we so often have a completely false view of who we are. And we tell ourselves things about ourselves that are simply not true. And uh, almost always, we paint ourselves in a much better light than we have a right to. In the story of my life, I am the hero. I'm the good guy. And the bad guys are all you guys out there. Because I'm the hero of my story. And I always had this perception of myself as being on the right side of things. Everybody else might be on the wrong side of it, but I'm, I'm the good guy. And oftentimes, uh, our view of who we are is completely false, completely mistaken. And that's really what Jesus is confronting in today's passage. He's going to confront the false assumptions some people of his day had about themselves. And who knows? Maybe he'll do the same to some of us here today. We're in John chapter 8, verses 30 through 47. And I've titled the message, Who's Your Father? Let's start with verse 30. As he said these things, many believed in him. So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, If you remain in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will release you. This is uh, heartening. If you've been listening to all of my messages since we started at the beginning of chapter 6 with this final day of the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles when Jesus stood up and uh, announced that uh, he is uh, the source of living waters, that he is the light of the cosmos, and all these things that he's been saying on this momentous day. And we know that from chapter 6 all the way through, we're going through the end of chapter 8, and I, I hate to tell you this, but it's going to take us to the end of chapter 9. It's just been fight after fight. Jesus will say something, and then the Jews who are listening to him will respond and contradict what he's saying and try to uh, offer a rebuttal to what he's saying, and it's back and forth, back and forth. And we reach verse 30 in chapter 8 after basically almost three full long chapters of discussions, and we think, okay, finally, Jesus has won over at least some of the people he's been talking to. And many of them have believed in him after he said these things. If you remember what we were looking at last week, these things were, uh, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And uh, Jesus claiming the divine name there and saying, you have to understand that I am God Almighty or you have no hope, you will die in your sins. And many believed in him, John tells us. But as we keep reading, you'll see that John uses the word believe or faith. In Greek, there's not a separate word for believe. It's basically faith 
in the verbal form. You know, like we can say love as a noun, or it can also be a, a verb. I love you, or I have love. Well, in the Greek, faith works that way. I have faith, or I faith in you. And every time you see believe, uh, understand that in the Greek, it's that exact same word as faith, just in the verbal form. So many put their faith in Jesus. Many believed in him. But we realize, I think, in John's gospel that he uses the term faith in a very different way than, for example, the Apostle Paul does. Uh, for Paul, if you read all of Paul's letters, Paul never uses faith as anything but the thing that brings you to redemption in Christ. That's the only way Paul uses the word. But if you look, for example, in James, he talks about two kinds of faith. There is a genuine faith that is uh, evidenced in the works of a person who is in the process of being saved by Jesus. And there is a living faith and there is a false, counterfeit, dead faith that claims faith but that is actually not redeeming anything. I think John uses that term in the same way. He, he wants his readers to understand that just saying, I believe in Jesus, is not going to get you to the finish line. That faith is a lot more than just saying, I agree. That true faith uh, is, is a much deeper uh, reality. So these that have believed in him, you'll notice very quickly, as soon as I get to the next verse, 33, that they are uh, really not the kind of people who have come to faith in Jesus. Because what he's going to say right now that we're talking about now, they're going to immediately reject. And uh, by the end of this chapter, they're going to want to kill him. So uh, I think John does this to remind us that there's a lot of things that people throw around and this term faith people use very lightly and that uh, that's not the same thing as the kind of faith we're talking about that results in rescue at the hands of Christ. So, but many believed in him. So Jesus now turns his attention from the Jews at large that are there uh, debating with him and turns his attention to those who claim to have believed in him and he says okay here's where we go from here you say you believe in me what does that mean now you if you remain in my word that's logos that same word from chapter one in the beginning was the logos the message the communication of God and the communication was God and the uh, was with God and the communication was God and that communication became flesh if you remain in my logos, in my word, in what I am conveying to you, you st and that's another word that John uses a lot, remain. Stay put. Don't be a tourist in faith. Be a homesteader in faith. You set down roots here. You remain in my word in what I am teaching you, then you are truly going to become my disciples. So faith in Jesus has to result in us remaining in what he tells us and becoming apprentices to him. If we do that, then we will come to know the truth. That is the process by which we are inducted into a personal knowledge of the truth. We remain in Jesus' word. 
We follow after him. We are his disciples. And here's the the reason we want to do all of this, because then the truth will release us. It will set us free. Jesus is describing salvation as a process. And a lot of times we want to think it all boils down to just that one moment of signing on the dotted line. I will acquiesce. I will sign off on the creed. I'll put my name at the bottom there. And we're done. I'll check back with you, God, on final judgment. That's not at all what Jesus is describing here. And I think it's a complete misunderstanding to think that salvation is all about us dealing with final judgment and hell. That salvation is just about when I die and I have to give an account of myself to the Creator who entrusted me with the gift of life and what I have done and how I have managed what He put in my hands, then uh, I want to not be in real big trouble with Him. Some people think that's the gospel. It's fire insurance. That's not at all what it is. Because here's the problem. You're already in hell. You are already severed from your Creator because of your sin and your unbelief. And you are already reaping the rewards of that sin in your life. You are already experiencing the death that sin brings to relationships, to the good qualities in you that should be there and are being strangled by sin. The kindness and the gentleness and the concern for others is being choked out. You are already in prison. You are already dead. When we talk about salvation, we're saying there's something Christ is bringing that you need, not someday when you die, you need it today. You need rescue. You need a word that will come around you and envelop you. You need a master who will take your hand and say, follow me out of this prison. Salvation is a process. And as we take the hand of the one who reaches in to rescue, we begin the process of acquiring the truth that breaks us out. That is how it happens. We come to know intimately, personally, the reality of the truth. And that reality implemented in our lives breaks us free. I have a question from these verses. Jesus calls us to remain in his teaching and be apprenticed to him in life so that we may become, I'm sorry, so that we may come to be intimately familiar with the truth which will release us from prison. How is this a description of salvation as a process? How do they respond? Of course, these are the ones who have believed in him. We would think they'd say, great, we were hoping you'd tell us how this works. That's not at all what they say. Verse 33, they replied to him, we are offspring of Abraham and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will be released? I'm not sure in what sense they think they're saying this. If they're saying this historically of themselves as a people, it's absurd. To claim that we as Jews 
as uh, the people of Israel, as the descendants of Abraham. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Hello, do you remember how the whole story of you guys started? Where were you when God first called you out? Weren't you slaves in Egypt? And God broke you out of prison and released your bonds and made you his family and his nation? What do you mean we've never been enslaved? Ever since uh, Jerusalem fell back in 587 B.C., we're now probably in 30-something A.D. Ever since that happened, the Jews have only had about 80 years of political independence. They have been slaves to Egypt, to Syria, to Assyria, to Babylon, to Persia, to Greece, now to Rome. They have been under the heel of one empire after another and have often been carted off into slavery. What do they mean to say, we have never been enslaved to anyone? It's absolutely absurd. Maybe that's not what they're saying. Maybe they're not talking politically. Maybe they're talking about a spiritual reality. The pagans are enslaved to their pagan mindset and all these false gods they're worshiping and all this uh, deception. We see clearly. We know. What do you mean? We will know the truth. We already know the truth. We have the word of God. We've got it all in our hands and we are spiritually free. Maybe that's what they mean to say. And they take offense. How dare you suggest that you need to free us from anything. I think one of the biggest obstacles to faith is that opening meme we looked at. We have this image of who I am and when Jesus shows up and says, you know what, you are a sinner in need of rescue, we say, that, that's not right. How dare you suggest that I need saving? How dare you suggest that I need to be released from anything? I'm an American. We're the freest people in the world. Freedom is our anthem, right? How dare you suggest we need help? They take great offense at Jesus. I have a question from these verses. The Jews who had believed in Jesus take great offense at his suggestion that they need to be set free. Why do we find it so hard to accept that Jesus has to change us? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Now the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son should release you, you will truly be released. Jesus prefaces his words here again with that signal, truly, truly. I think every time he does that, he means to say, pay real close attention to what I'm about to say because this is a significant bit of truth. You need to listen to what I'm saying here. This is an important truth. Everyone who practices sin is a slave of sin. Jesus 
may have been the first to express that that way. I know that the Apostle Paul took that idea and ran with it. Even though John is probably writing decades after Paul has uh, passed away, uh, before Paul said these kinds of things, Jesus was saying them. And Paul devotes a whole long chapter in Romans 7 to digging into the mystery of the power of sin over those who commit sin. And this idea of sin as a master, a cruel taskmaster, and we as slaves to it when we commit sin, is something Jesus uh, taught and Paul certainly understood. Even the Old Testament, it's not a New Testament only thing. Throughout the Bible, in both covenants, in both testaments, it's very clear that we all sin. Every single one of us sins. There is no righteous, not one. When you read that in the New Testament, it's because they're quoting the Old Testament. So it's found in both uh, the Old and New Testaments. We are all participants in sin. Jesus says every single person who sins, who practices sin, is a slave of sin. We like to think that when we sin, we're actually doing what we want to do, that we are free. Take a few uh, steps down that path and see where it leads. I thumb my nose at God. I do what I want to do. I choose what I want to choose. I'm going to walk my way. God doesn't know. I know. And I'm no slave of anything. I could change any moment. I could turn right around and go in the opposite direction, right? Do it. Show me. Be rid of that sin. And you'll realize the moment you try to turn around that you can't. That you're stuck in it. And that even if you reach the point where you hate yourself for what you have become, you are powerless to do anything about it. Because that's the nature of sin. We walk into it and it, it's a trap that clamps shut around our souls. And we find that the, the more we turn away from God, the less capable we are of turning back. They say we've never been slaves of anyone. And Jesus says you're all slaves of sin. I'm not talking about the Romans. I'm not talking about any of all that. I'm talking about the real problem you as an individual have. Sin rules you. Sin owns you. And there's not a thing you can do about it. You can read every health, help, self-help book written. It's not going to change a thing. You can read The Secret and get all mystical about it. It's not going to change a thing. Because you're stuck in it. And you can lie to yourself all day long, but you're not going to get out of it by your own methods and your own efforts. It's not about meditating or thinking happy thoughts or being a better person. You can't break free. Jesus uses an illusion or, or, or an example. In a household, the slave has no permanent position. In a household, a slave can be sold off any moment. 
whenever it's convenient to the owner of the household. This slave is just not working out for me. I'll just sell him and get a different one. Uh, we got too many slaves, too many mouths to feed. I'll just get rid of this slave. The son, however, isn't in that category. The son remains forever. And specifically now in this uh, comparison, we're talking about the household of God, that house that Jesus in chapter 2, when he cleansed the temple, said of the temple, don't make my father's house a house of commerce. The house of God, Jesus is the eternal son of the eternal father. And he's the only one with absolute right within that household to dictate who gets to be in and who isn't. So if the son, who has the level of authority necessary to release a slave, releases you, then, then you are truly released. That's not something you're going to accomplish on your own. But Jesus is reminding them, I have the authority, the position, and the power to actually break you free from sin. Do you understand what Jesus is telling us? He's not just saying he's going to deal with the, the ultimate punishment for sin. He's saying he's going to free us from the power of sin. And our life now becomes a process of God implementing in us the freedoms of eternity. Now. We don't have to live as slaves of sin. And as we remain in his word, as we are discipled to him, the truth opens up ever new avenues of freedom in our hearts and lives. In this process of rescue. We don't just need a declaration of not guilty at final judgment. We need somebody to blow open the doors and climb down into the deepest dungeons where we are locked up and shatter the chains that hold us there and throw our arm over his shoulder and carry us out to the broad daylight. Freedom. That is what we need. And it's what he offers I have a question from these verses. Jesus, as the only Son of God, has authority to release us from the power of sin. We, as mere slaves of sin, are powerless to break free. How should this inform our understanding of the process of salvation in Christ? Let's read verse 37. I have known that you are offspring of Abraham, but you are seeking to kill me because my word makes no headway in you. What I have seen with the Father I speak, so you do the things you have heard from the Father. Jesus says, I know what you're saying. You're descendants of Abraham. You, you're calling, uh, calling on this spiritual heritage you have as descendants of Abraham. But he says, here's the contradiction in your claim. You're still scheming to figure out how you can kill me. You're still trying to figure out how you can use what rabbi's interpretation of the law of Moses and how you can manipulate it around so that you can use it to justify killing me. And their wheels are turning. How can we turn the fact that he uh, healed a paralytic on the Sabbath and told him to carry his cot with him? How can we turn that into an excuse to kill him? They're working on it. You want to kill me. You know why, Jesus says? Because my word 
makes no headway in you. You've thrown up a barrier, and my word, you will not let it penetrate. That very word that he says that if we remain in it, if we allow ourselves to become disciples, that will unlock the truth that will set us free. They won't even let it, any kind of entry into their lives. And Jesus warns them, what I have seen with the Father. I come from the Godhead itself, the perfect communion of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I descend from there to speak to you. So do what I'm telling you because in what I am saying to you, you are hearing the words from the Father. There is a textual variant here. Your translation may say, you do the things you've heard from your father. That your uh, is not found in, in the most ancient manuscript. So I think uh, that, that's a, a textual variant uh, that was introduced some kind of a mistake in copying at some point. But I think the original sense was Jesus is saying, I'm conveying to you the words of the Father. And it is your job to do what God the Father says. You need to do what the Father says. Verse 39, they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus says to them, if you were children of Abraham, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you are seeking to kill me, a man who has spoken to you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You are doing the works of your father. So they said to him, we have not been begotten out of sexual immorality. We have one father, God. I would call these verses what we tell ourselves. The first part of that meme. This is what these people are telling themselves. This is what they claim as their true identity. We are children of Abraham. We are children of God. We claim the spiritual heritage of the first man we know of that entered into this relationship with God in which God said, I'm going to work through you and your family to bring blessing to the whole earth. This man who walked in faith and trusted God and God worked mightily and miraculously in his life to give him children And to bless him. They're claiming that is their identity. We are children of Abraham. And as such, we are the people of God. We have one father, God. That's what they tell themselves. Here's the problem. Jesus says, you know, if that were true, if that identity were actually truly descriptive of who you are, You wouldn't just say you're the children of Abraham. You would behave the way Abraham behaved. You're trying to kill me. You know why you want to kill me? There's only one reason. I haven't taken any of your money. I'm not competing for your position. I'm not trying to take your job from you. I'm not raising up armies to fight you. I have done nothing of aggression toward you. The reason you want to kill me is that I have spoken the truth to you and you don't want to hear it. 
That's the only reason you want to kill me. You know what? Abraham did not do that. You know what Abraham did when God talked to him? He said, all right. He said, yes. God said, leave your family. Let's go wandering. Abraham said, all right. God said, take your son, your only son, your beloved. Go sacrifice him on a, on a mountain, I'm going to tell you. Three days he got up early in the morning and continued on his journey to that mountain to kill his son. Ultimately, God delivered his son. But Abraham, every time God said something, Abraham said, all right, let's do it. Now that same God that Abraham so loved has come in the flesh and is offering life eternal. And these people who claim the spiritual heritage of Abraham want to kill him. They have a different father. And they take offense. We've not been begotten out of sexual immorality. Again, there are two ways at least in which this could be understood. Maybe they're talking about their, them having a, a, a descent physically that is untainted by an inappropriate relationship. If that's what they're trying to say, it's not true. In the Law of Moses, in Leviticus 18, there is a long list of uh, unions that are forbidden. You are not to marry your father's wife. You are not to marry your uh, father's brother or sister. You are not to marry your sister, not even your half-sister. Guess who Abraham was married to? His half-sister, Sarah. And from that union came Isaac. So according to the very law of Moses, according to God's will as expressed in the law of Moses, that was not an accepted union. That was, by God's definition, incest. There's another union that was forbidden in Leviticus 18. You shall not marry a woman and her sister while that woman lives and make them rival wives. Now, back in the days of the patriarchs, uh, they did uh, have multiple wives. And I think by the time we get to the New Testament, we're moving out of that. But uh, as a way of regulating that, there was that in Leviticus 18 saying, you don't take a wife and her sister and make them become rivals. Do you know who did that? Israel himself. Jacob married Leah. And a week later, took Rachel as a wife. And we know that sad story, the, the rivalry that was a part of that family all the way through. It's, it's a horrible, sad story of strife. So again, if they're trying to claim some kind of pure, pristine uh, descent, even the originators of the whole lineage don't, can't claim that. Maybe it's something a little more offensive that they're suggesting. Maybe they've gotten wind that there's something a little screwy about Jesus' birth, that some, some rumor that Mary got pregnant before they were married. 
And Joseph was a real stand-up guy. He wouldn't, have, he wouldn't have done something like that. Surely she had some indiscretion. But Joseph is such a good guy that he went ahead and married her anyway and raised the kid as his own. But who knows who the father of this boy might be. Maybe that's what they're insinuating here. We haven't been begotten from some act of sexual immorality like you have. Who are you to, to say anything to us? Who are you to question our credentials and our lineage and the purity of our lineage? We have one Father, God. They are claiming fully the identity of the people of God. I have a question from these verses. Jesus knows the people listening to him want to kill him. Yet he pleads with them to heed the communication he is bringing to them from God the Father. They respond in anger, claiming a special position with God through Abraham. Why do we often insist on establishing our own rightness apart from Jesus? Let's finish. 42 through 47, Jesus says to them, If God was your father, you would have loved me. For I came forth from God and am here. For I have not come from myself, but that one sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and was not standing in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks of his own because he is a liar and the father of lies. But me? Because I am speaking the truth you do not believe. Who among you convicts me of sin? If I am speaking the truth, why do you not believe me? The one who is of God listens to God's words. This is why you do not listen, because you are not of God. I would call these verses what we're really like. They tell themselves we're descendants of Abraham. We are children of God. Jesus says, that's not at all who you are. If God was your father, you would love me. That's where I came from. From the Godhead itself. That God you claim to love, to honor, that God you claim as the one who gives you your identity, here I am, and you hate me. Something doesn't add up. I didn't just show up here. I didn't send myself here. I have come from the Father with a specific rescue mission to accomplish. And I, under, I sense Jesus' frustration. Why don't you understand what I'm saying? And Jesus answers his own questions you, because you can't hear my word. You blocked yourself off. You're not going to listen to it. 
You want to know who your father is? You want to know who you're emulating? It's the devil. It's his desires that you most want to see implemented. He was a murderer from the beginning, from the very beginning. The intent of the devil was our death. And he knew, he knew that if Adam and Eve disobeyed God and ate from the tree he had told them not to eat from, they would die. Which is why he deceived Eve and seduced Adam. Because his desire was to see them dead. When he lies, he speaks of his own. He's a liar and the father of lies. You know who doesn't lie ever? Ever. God. So, Jesus is basically saying every time we embrace the untruth as opposed to the truth, it's because in our hearts we have aligned ourselves not with God, but with the one who hates truth, the devil himself. His desire is to deceive, to hide the truth, to say that the, that reality is other than what it is. What is Jesus' tremendous offense to us? That he dared to speak the truth. Notice he speaks the truth redemptively. He doesn't say, you're a sinner, you are a slave to sin, deal with it. He says, you're a sinner, you're a slave to sin, and I have come to break you free, if you will let me. How can that offend us? How can that be offensive? We are in a plight of our own making, and God has come down to rescue us from it. And we get offended? Jesus says to them, Who among you convicts me of sin? Who would dare to say that in public? I'll tell you who dares. Somebody who's never sinned. You'll notice nobody came back with anything. Because Jesus had never sinned. He could stand in front of a crowd and say, I dare any of you to point out one sin that I have committed. Nobody came forward. If I'm speaking the truth, why won't you believe me? problem is that we love the lies. The lies our society tells us about who we are. The lies we tell ourselves. There's a misunderstanding of the gospel. And it, it enters through this idea that God loves you just the way you are. You don't have to clean up to come to God. 
You don't have to get everything straight and in order to come to God. You can be just the way you are. God will take you right now. And that is absolutely true. But here's where sometimes I think people take it completely wrong. God's not about to leave you in prison. He's not about to leave you mired in the the grunge and dirt and filth of sin. He's not going to leave you there. He'll take you from there, but he's not going to leave you there. And sometimes people assume that saying God loves me just the way I am means God doesn't want to change a thing about me. I'm perfect already. That's what we like to tell ourselves. That's one of the lies we like to try to convince ourselves is true. I'm just fine. Nothing at all needs to change about my life. Jesus can save me without changing anything. The one who is of God listens to God's words. This is why you don't listen. Because you're not of God. We either belong to God or we don't. We have either opened ourselves up to the word of Christ and have centered ourselves squarely and have chosen to abide within it. We have chosen to become apprentices to Christ and let him lead us out of the dungeon to breathe the air of freedom. We have either done that or we have rejected him in favor of some other deception, some other liar, some other charlatan who tells us what we think we want to hear because deep down we don't love God and we don't love the truth. We love ourselves and we love the lies we tell ourselves. I have a final question. We will either allow Jesus to save us and embrace life and truth or we will reject him because we prefer the murders and lies of the devil. Why do you suppose so many reject Jesus' offer of rescue? What do we make of Jesus? He says amazing things, promises life everlasting and light that we, if we are in him, we will never walk in darkness. But unless we're willing to admit we're hopelessly lost, that we are in fact slaves of sin, powerless to do anything about it, Jesus cannot save us. We have to be willing to follow him out of the dungeon. For our lives to become committed to a process of transformation that will stretch on into eternity. We listen to what he says. We do what he says. We follow where he leads. And in that process, the truth will begin to replace lies. And Every avenue, every area of my life that opens up to truth will be an area of release and freedom. We want to claim that we're great already, that we're special, that we've done wonderful things on our own and managed to get ourselves well on the way to where we need to be eventually. We've got to give up on that pipe dream, on that self-deception. 
We want to argue with Jesus. We want to hold to our own way, our own thoughts, our own perspective, our own truth. We must surrender that to him. We may be offended. How dare he suggest we're nothing but filthy beggars? Doesn't he know how special we are? How privileged? How holy? True children of God are drawn to truth, unflattering as it may be. They alone will know freedom because they alone will allow Jesus to break them free. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that you saw us in prisons of our own making and you broke into our world to reach out your hand to us and say, take my hand, let me break you out of here. Jesus, I pray for the courage to break with the lies and to open ourselves up to the glorious, eternal light of your truth. Immerse us in your word. Take us on as your disciples and guide us out of the darkness and into the light. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray all of this. Amen.